Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Attention is so important that it actually is responsible for the very structure of the human brain. The latest theory of the bilateral brain is that we have two hemispheres because to stay alive and to function, we need to be able to host two radically incompatible forms of awareness at the exact same time. That cannot be done consciously. So one form of attention dominates our conscious awareness, and the other form of attention generally happens in the background, unconsciously. So what are those two forms of attention? In all mammals, uh, we need to survive to have an ability to focus on acquiring or manipulating a very specific object to get food, to get a tool, to get um, something to create shelter. To use an example, a bird, uh, this is a famous example used by the neuropsychologist Ian McGilchrist, a bird that's searching for seeds has to have very focused attention, looking for the right seed to eat or the right twig to build a nest. So it's conscious of the single object. So one form of consciousness takes the entire field of awareness of all the objects in front of us and fixates it or focuses it like a narrow spotlight in a theater on a single object. So right now, your left hemisphere is probably spotlighting me. On the other hand, there's a second form of awareness that is background or field awareness, and it is... Uh, keeping track of overall sense of security and safety. Do we feel anywhere a sense of mounting threat? Or are we suddenly spot someone that might become an ally or an adversary? So in the background, while you're looking at me, your right hemisphere is scanning the room unconsciously. But you're not just doing that with your right hemisphere. You're also taking in the nonverbal components of my, of my communication, my body language. Your left is focusing very narrowly on my, my, you know, just, I don't know what you're looking at. But anyway, your, your, most of your attention is going to the words I say. That's what your left hemisphere does. It creates language and it focuses attention on specific objects it wants to manipulate. So if you're uh, doing something with your hands, your left hemisphere is focusing on the activity, whereas your right hemisphere is doing lateral awareness of the space around you. You can't do both at the same time. That's why (coughs) we have twin hemispheres. That's why one hemisphere largely migrates to unconsciousness by around age five. The right hemisphere not only pays attention to the uh, entirety of a context, the entire room that we're in right now, but your right hemisphere is the one that's paying attention to how you feel in your body. And it's paying attention to my body language. So your right hemisphere is integrating all of the information provided by emotions and feelings and general shifts in body state. Your left hemisphere, which focuses on specific objects and creates language, has very, very, very little uh, in, uh, synapse, well actually there are axons that run down to the body and have any awareness of how your body feels. It's almost like encased your left hemisphere without any embodied awareness. So, in short, we spend our lives uh, generally 
largely manipulating spotlight attention, and then sometimes the right hemisphere, the floodlight, the broad attention, will spot something that it deems important, and it will bring it to our attention. And sometimes when we enter a new scenario, like if you're suddenly before the Grand Canyon, or you walk into a new room you've never seen before, or you walk into a social gathering, for a moment, before you focus looking for a friendly face, that's your left hemisphere, your, spo your spotlight attention, for a moment, you're taking in the entire gestalt of the situation, the entire milieu, the in I don't know why I'm using these words all of a sudden, but anyway, <laughs> the entire field of vision. So, when depending on how we use attention, we'll either regulate our emotions and down-regulate stress, or it can heighten stress, and it can actually fail to, it can actually repress emotions and lead to emotion dysregulation. Focusing on a specific sensation, such as the breath, or the sounds of a room in practice can reduce stress. And we'll talk about why in a moment, but if you use it strategically, it will be a very useful tool. But if you rely on concentration or focused attention for too long, it becomes what John Wellwood, a great psychologist, called a spiritual bypass, where you're not actually, you're focusing your attention to create tranquility, but you're unaware of all of the right hemispheric information about the emotional state that you're in. So if you use concentration or fixed focused attention too much without balancing it, you'll wind up emotionally dysregulated. And if you want to have an example, go to any yoga center and meet half of the people there because I've been in yoga for 20 plus years and many, many people there are really charming and kind and wonderful, but it also you will meet some of the most emotionally inauthentic people you'll ever meet. They will have this, hi. How are you? My name is uh, Earth. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. And the fear of negative emotions and, and sadness and grief are, are literally, literally demonized and literally presented as something that's like you're doing something wrong. And so many of the meditations they teach, not coincidentally, are meditations that are essentially based on pranayana breathing, which essentially is a concentration technique, which when used exclusively is just a spiritual bypass. You need to be able to balance both. Sometimes we can flip back and forth between two things in attention. That can be very useful. The first thing, by the way, the Buddha called concentration or kagata, where you hold one thing in mind and it can create states of tranquility. That's what concentration does. The second kind of attention is when you go back and forth strategically between two objects that you've selected. The Buddha called this dhamma-vikaya, and it can be used to um, for example, we can use it for uh, what's developing what's called distress tolerance. I'll give you an example and we'll use it in the meditation. Very often in life we practice avoidance coping to avoid situations that might be conflictual, that might have any kind of, of uh, interpersonal uh, tension. Because we anticipate essentially drama or a kind of conflict brewing. An alternative way is to develop distress tolerance, which is uh, not only used in Buddhism, the, uh, we'll talk about it, but 
in dialectical behavioral therapy, it's a very important technique, where essentially you hold in your mind an image of an, of an upcoming event or interpersonal interaction that generally you would avoid because it's too scary, like a conversation where you need to set a boundary with someone who's uh, emotionally overbearing. And when you think about setting this boundary, your stomach gets tied up in knots, but because you're so busy, we're so busy thinking about that person and how we respond, we're not aware of the unconscious physiological stress that's building up in the somatic experience. So if you can, or I can, or whoever, can flip back and forth between visualizing the exchange and then paying attention to the area of the body where the tension is growing and then using techniques to relax that growing tension, then we can learn to go into stressful, threatening, vulnerable situations without it being overwhelming. Because if you can relax the somatic part where the actual emotional fear is most largely registered, if you can relax that part, and, which is generally only monitored by your right hemisphere, if you can bring that up to awareness, then you can actually develop the stress tolerance. You can have a painful conversation with someone that you know will be conflictual because so much of what makes uncomfortable conversations terrifying is the fact that unconsciously we feel this tightness in our belly at the very anticipation of talking with someone. Sometimes what we can do is, <clears throat> when something's really unskillful, we can take awareness away from it and put it on something else. The Buddha talks about this as a last resort. It's known as suppression. Um, it's essentially a technique that can be used sparingly um, as a form of motor inhibition where you're really about to become very re reactive. You're in a situation where you start to feel uh, uh, triggered. And if you take your awareness away from the trigger, it might be somebody's facial expression. It might be something that's activating or reminds you of a previous traumatic event, if you can take your awareness away from it and place it on something else, for a while you can suppress the trigger and hopefully get out of the situation. That's one technique. And then finally, uh, another technique we can do is actually stop focusing attention on anything and maintain that broad, essentially scenic, wide, spacious awareness. This is what the Buddha called atamiyata. And it's one of the most beautiful practices because if you can um, hold everything that's present in your awareness, including obsessive, repetitive, intrusive thoughts, just allow everything in your awareness, then you're no longer fighting against anything. So if some thought keeps coming up and it's triggering you, generally the way we try to deal with that is by trying to push it down. And that doesn't work. In fact, we know from the, um, uh, the research in Wegman's book, uh, White Bears, it's a great masterpiece. He was a Harvard psychologist. And he showed that any thought you try to simply push down uh, creates an unconscious mechanism that makes it come up more constantly, more frequently. In fact, well, the name of the book, White Bears, is he had a famous experiment where he asked people to not think about polar bears. And the people who asked not to think about polar bears thought about polar bears twice as often as the people he said, think about polar bears if you want. So the attempt to not think about polar bears backfires entirely. So, but you can, of course, use the suppression technique. He found that people who were given the option to think about red Volkswagens, why he came up with these objects, I don't know. 
But if you were allowed to think about red Volkswagens and the people who were given the first experiment was not thinking about white polar bears, stopped thinking about them. So um, these are the four techniques. If you know how to use them fluidly, you'll be emotionally regulated. You won't, you'll be able to reduce stress significantly. You'll be able to go into situations that you normally would avoid because you'll know how to uh, essentially lower the physiological manifestation of stress. You'll know how to deal with sudden impulsive thoughts that might be overwhelming. You'll have a general ability to develop mindfulness which will help with even greater emotion regulation. Um, so there's things that we should never, however, focus our attention on. We'll talk about that first. Um, there's a state in the mind called default mode network. It's a circuit. It's literally an ingrained circuit. Uh, it's something that flips on very often when we are not in another state or circuit, which is called, um, uh, what is it called? Task positive mode. Task positive is when you're doing something that fixates your attention on something you're doing with your hands, but you're in no way thinking about yourself, about anything in the future, anything in the past. It's when you're gardening or drawing or, do, or doing something with jewelry or knitting or um, anything that focuses your attention on manipulating an object. It uses a left hemispheric circuit that completely bypasses the amygdala, which is your fear and next, you know, essentially survival uh, alarm system of your brain. So when you're focusing your attention on that, you're in a state called flow. Flow feels really good. When you're in flow, you have very little awareness of time passing. You're uh, essentially completely enraptured or enchanted or uh, engulfed. The philosopher Heidegger referred to the state of flow as care. And for him, it was the highest form of human endeavor because he had never heard of meditation. So, mm -hmm. But um, <clears throat> meditation is actually a form of flow. When you're not in task positive and you're not focusing your attention on something, then your mind goes into default mode where it wanders. And the wonderful study by Gilbert and, and Killingsworth at Harvard as well did a famous study, if you want to look it up, called uh, Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. When you don't plant your awareness on something and you just allow it to follow your thoughts, guess where your thoughts will lead you? The answer is nowhere good. Uh, generally, when they, what they did is they created an app. And the app they gave to 2,000 people. It was a big study. And this app would randomly bleep and ask them what they're doing at that moment in time and how happy they felt and how peaceful do they feel. And they found that half of the times in our life we are in thought wandering, not paying attention to what we're doing, just allowing our minds to wander, and that the vast majority of the time our thoughts wind up thinking about ourselves and what's going to happen to us in the future. And guess what? It turns out that speculating about ourselves <clears throat> is the miracle growth of misery. So, Half of the time in our life, we're doing the very thing that creates misery and suffering. They found, in fact, that people are happier in dentist chairs because they're, while they're being, they're having their teeth drilled, because they're focusing on something rather than speculating about what other people think about them or how much money they're going to have in the future. Literally, that's what they found. 
they had people that would they'd be buzzed in Denza's chairs and they're like, this kind of sucks, but I'm not that unhappy. <laughs> but catch them in the middle of the day where they're just I wonder why this person didn't reply to my text. <coughs> the Buddha listed four things that always, if you hold them in mind, will cause misery. So he broke it down into a group of four. They're called upadanas. They're things that we fixate on or grab our attention. The first is uh, kama upadana. Kama upadana is the fixation when we're feeling an emotion that's unpleasant, fixating on something as a compulsion that will remove the underlying feeling. So to give you some classic examples of with people I've worked with in counseling, uh, people very often will come home to an empty apartment. They feel lonely. What do they do when they feel lonely? They eat. Why do you, why did not necessarily you, why does one eat when we feel lonely? Well, simple, because it brings to mind associations of the time when we were children, when we were being fed. And when we're being fed as children, we feel seen, appreciated, taken care of, we feel nurtured. So essentially, it activates a feeling of, of somebody there taking care of us. So when we feel lonely, as a compulsion, we will very often eat even though it's not f serving any nutritious value. Very often when people I've worked with don't feel <clears throat> any sense of power or purpose in their life, they'll shop. Because in shopping, there's this feeling of solidity. It concretizes our existence. It it's transactional, it makes us feel in some way seen, uh, and unless you're doing it on Amazon, but anyway. Uh, so you get it, that's what Kamaupadana, it's being, the, the drive to consume something as a way to suppress or repress an unpleasant underlying emotion. It's driven by what's called craving. The second is Sila Upadana, Sila Upadana is the fixation with doing things the way we like to have it done. And, you know, I like to have my stuff just so. What are you doing right now? Why are you putting the spoon over there? Why is that over there? That should be over there. Where's my iced coffee? Why is there a long line to get my iced coffee in the morning? Why is my muffin store closed? What the fuck? <laughs> Anything that gets in the way of what the Buddha calls our routines. Upholding our routines, getting irritated at things that interrupt our routines is the second thing that dominates attention, causes stress, generally because nothing you can do about it. The first issue compulsively consuming things as a way to not feel uh, necessary emotions leads to emotion dysregulation and it always leaves us unsatisfied because no matter what you consume, it's going to give you a short dopamine blast that'll last for about 25 minutes and then you'll be right back where you started, right? So it's, that's not gonna work. The third is Ditti Upadana. Another way to repress emotions is to fixate our attention on stories, views, and opinions. Classic examples are when we feel angry. Nobody particularly likes to feel angry. Uh, anger is very often shamed in children. In a misogynistic culture, women are often even more shamed for having any form of anger, which is a necessary emotion. So as a way to repress anger, which we associate with social rejection and shaming, we'll very often uh, replace it with a resentment, a story about how terrible somebody is or how unfairly we've been treated. The problem is that whereas anger, if you feel it, 
and eventually learn how to process it, it will lead you to set boundaries. It will lead you to take an action. Resentment will never, ever lead to an action. It's there as a way to simply keep your mind occupied as a form of motor inhibition. Resentment starts in childhood as a way for the child to not actually confront injustice in the family system. It starts out as a way to essentially the child bides its time just waiting to get out of the family system and just tells resentments and it feels as if it's somehow doing something when in fact absolutely nothing. No boundaries are being set, no guidelines, no needs are being expressed. It's a substitute for feeling emotions and for taking actions based on essentially processed emotion. And finally, the fourth thing that grabs our attention is a tava upadana, that's um, thinking about yourself. Default moot network, we've already talked about that. Other problems with not being able to use uh, attention wisely is, of course, if you cannot learn to develop fixated attention for a period of time, that's associated in adult life with ADHD. I hesitate to bring this up because in my view, ADHD is the most overdiagnosed condition there is. In many ways, it's uh, the pharmaceutical industry medicalizing actually a very normative biological state in the brain. Uh, the inability to maintain acetylcholine and thus the inability to focus attention does not generally need to be as uh, medically treated as much as we do. It can actually, the development of acetylcholine can actually be very often built up through, as, you know, very daily uh, practice endeavor. Now, that's not to say all diagnoses of ADHD are incorrect. Many of them are. It's just seriously over-prescribed medication. I have no problem with medication. I think very often people are too scared of taking antidepressants such as uh, serotonin-based reuptake inhibitors can be very valuable. And I would definitely encourage people if they've been diagnosed not to uh, think that there's anything that's not spiritual about it or not Buddhist. It's, it's in fact not Buddhist to not take medication that has been prescribed. Um, so <clears throat> the Buddha talked about using attention constantly. One set he suggested on, as a way to develop tranquility is to focus attention on gratitude and appreciation of others. Kaganusati, Silanusati, Karuna. These are all practices where we bear in mind images of someone who's been kind to us. Uh, in the Recently, I've talked about how now in attachment psychology, the ideal parent protocol is largely based on this technique of being able to reparent oneself by visualizing people we associate with care. It's a wonderful technique to develop not only confidence, but to lower anticipatory stress when we have to go into an interaction that's scary. The Buddha is saying the practices of sub, in the Sabhasava of developing the stress tolerance. He called it forbearance. Um, I'll read you some of his language, because it's just kind of funny. Um, just as one can endure discomfort stemming from cold, thirst, gadflies, mosquitoes, and lice, one can learn to tolerate ill-spoken words and minor slights from others. One endures the unpleasant through using tools such as proper awareness, by which he means develop, relaxing the body, softening the belly, sitting with the discomfort, but relaxing 
the underlying somatic experience. He also talks about restraining senses through, um, uh, this is, I like this one. He says, um, as repressing uh, or avoiding uh, terrible things. He says, just as one avoids fierce elephants, oxen, wild dogs, snakes, and tree stumps, I just didn't lump them all together in my mind. Dangerous cliffs and refuse, refuse pits and cesspools. One prevents the repeated arising of obsessive, harmful thoughts by focusing attention elsewhere. There you go. Um, Switching attention from focused to broad floodlight attention where you're bringing in attention of the entire space around you, all the sounds, body sensations, in other words, bringing the content that your right hemisphere is processing in the background up to your foreground has been shown to activate the right ventral lateral prefrontal cortex. I'm impressed that I got that one out. I did have to look at my notes for that one. I'm not that much of a nerd. Um, that part of the brain is uh, engaged whenever you either reorient attention to something else or you bring a global spatial attention into awareness. And it's associated with um, building up not only slightly the opiates levels in your in your brain, but it also significantly triggers dopamine, the reward neurotransmitter. <clears throat> so in short, in life, the key tools we need to be able to use is we need to be able to focus attention, but only when it's on something skillful, i.e. not thinking about ourselves what other people think about us, what's going to happen in the future. Not fixating on uh, resentments or worries that are essentially emotional suppression tools that are repressing either anger or fear. Not focusing attention on consuming compulsively items. <clears throat> Instead, focusing attention on pro-social themes, such as people who've been kind to us or people who've shown us what generosity and uh, love and care is about. The ability to, when something stressful comes up, to hold it in attention and bring your awareness to something that is making the stress even greater and soften it. And we'll do this and all these in our meditation. <clears throat> we also will do mindfulness, sati, where you hold in mind something skillful, but then if something else calls your attention, your right hemisphere wants you to pay attention to it, it's like a body sensation or a feeling or perhaps a repressed memory or something that's floating up. You bring your attention to it, you observe it, you note it, and then you bring your awareness back to the skillful theme that you've been, you started off with, like the breath or whatever. And then finally, the broad, open, spacious awareness. All of these four techniques are very significant and important in developing not only a spiritual practice, but in giving you the tools to have a greater degree of well-being in your life. So let's actually put them into practice. Thanks for listening. So just keep your head nice and balanced. If you want, tilt your head a little bit back like you're looking at a tall building. That tends to help. Closing the eyes if they're not closed. If you don't want to close your eyes, just look at the ground in front of you. 
try not to, if you do keep your eyes open, not to look around the room or to look at any object that's cross-purposes. So we'll take a few breaths just to settle in. We'll be manipulating a nerve cluster in the front of the body that's very significant in messaging to the midbrain and telling the preconscious fight, flight, regions of the limbic region, as it used to be called, to relax. We're essentially informing a very old part of the brain that we're safe. So take a nice, full, complete in-breath through the nose. And while you do so, if you like, lift your shoulders up, holding them up, and then breathing out and dropping the shoulders and gently pulling your shoulders a little bit back, not too much, but just enough to open up the chest. Now, when you've got a broad chest, that's manipulating the vagal vagus nerve. That's the area that feels both heartbreak or registers as heartbreak after abandonments. But when you keep your chest open, it's actually sending a message that you feel secure, securely connected. When a child has its chest open, it feels well cared for. When it's in the startle position, it collapses its shoulders. That's when it doesn't feel cared for. So let's take another full in-breath and pull in the belly really tight. Just holding in your belly, then breathe out. That's another part of the old vagal vagus nerve, and that's the stomach. When clutched, is an expression of fear or vulnerability. A soft belly is telling, again, the amygdala, we're okay right now, nothing going on. Nothing to be worried about. And now, lastly, we're going to manipulate the, the new vagal vagus nerve, which runs down the face. So as you breathe in, pinch your face, lock the jaw, squeeze the muscles around your eyes and nose, make a really ugly, ridiculous pinched face. And then as you breathe out, soften, just soften all of those muscles especially the micro-muscles around the eyes. relaxing into the body. See if you can slightly sense your awareness like it's on an elevator and it's slowly lowering into your body. So you're no longer viewing the world as if consciousness is behind the eyes. You could spread consciousness or lower it into the body or just spread it through the body. Consciousness is, in fact, not localized anywhere. It's just a construction to assume that it's behind the eyes. In fact, your brain doesn't have any direct sensory information from the outside world. Everything is processed and represented. 
So where it represents consciousness is just essentially an illusion. So for our first skillful use of focused awareness, I'd like you to just bring your attention to a sensation that's actually occurring in the present. It could be the feeling of your body breathing. Find the most clear experience of the inhalation and exhalation of the breath. It could be in the chest or the tip of the nose or the belly. There's no right or wrong place to be aware of your breath. If you don't like the breath as an object, just hear the sounds, the air conditioner, the sounds of sirens and car horns from the street, my voice. Just listening, but not focusing on words, just hearing everything as if it's a documentation of a strange environment that will never happen again. Listening to the present moment as if it's a piece of scored music, not holding on to anything, not commenting, just allowing each sound to arise and pass without any resistance, not holding on to anything. You could view or conceive of sounds as like a breeze passing through two screen doors. So the breeze passes through one screen door into a room and then out the other. Sound is the same. Or you could just repeat a very skillful phrase, like, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. So we'll just sit here for a little while, just practicing with this first concentration object. Your mind eventually will drop it, get caught up in a thought that's totally okay. Nothing to worry about. Just relax back into whatever it is you're paying attention to and feel good because each time you wake up from a thought, it's a, essentially a small version of awakening in the much grander sense.
So for the next practice, bring to mind the image of someone that you associate with care, someone you appreciate, someone you associate with generosity or with kindness. And just visualize this person looking at you trying to feel grateful for this person and the sense of this person feeling grateful for you. It's known as Kaganusati, one of the ten skillful recollections also known as Deva Nusati. So let's now move to our third meditation technique. Bringing to mind the conversation or an interaction or a event that you're most definitely not looking forward to. Something that you associate with conflict or some kind of tension or drama. Perhaps a social event or just meeting with a specific, specific individual that you would prefer to avoid. So holding as triggering an image as you can 
visualize it in such a way that it purposely feels activating, uncomfortable, and then find the tension or the somatic expression of the associated emotion in your body. So very often we'll feel fear in the stomach, a tight stomach. Or there might be other affects experienced in the chest. The chest might get tight, the throat might get tight. There might be a locking of the jaw. There might be slight tension in the muscles of the forearm. Where do you feel the physical manifestation of discomfort associated with this event? And then use the breath Breathe into that area of the body and soften. Knead, like kneading water into dough. Knead the breath into whatever is tight or slightly contracted and relax it so you can hold the triggering image, but now there's less reactivity associated with it. So if you feel it in your stomach, just breathe into, soften the belly, release the contraction. So moving on to our fourth technique, bringing back into awareness the first object you kept in mind, whether it was the breath or the sounds, it could be the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Just bring into awareness something soothing. It could be the image of that person you associate with gratitude or the phrase repeating, I love you, keep going. Just bring something into awareness that's soothing. But then when something calls your attention, it could be a nagging thought. What am I going to get for dinner? Where am I going to go after this? Or it could be a memory from earlier on in the day. plan you're setting. It could just be another sensation. The body could feel some pain or whatever. Just bring your attention to whatever is whatever's announced itself. Label it. Oh, that's a thought. It's a thought about It's a plan, it's a memory. Don't get finicky about the label, just give it any old label you want, doesn't matter. Note how this new visitor in the mind might change the level of comfort and ease. 
you might notice the body slightly, it's a little bit more contracted or might even relax more. Don't get caught up in the thought, just observe how the thought affects the rest of the body. And then bring your awareness eventually back to the first object, the breath, the sounds, the metaphrase. Very basic mindfulness practice. This technique is used in Vipassana retreats frequently. And now for our last, uh, fifth meditation technique to develop new attentional skills. I'd like you to make your mind as spacious as possible. So stretch your mind to find the furthest sound to your left. Like you feel awareness stretching all the way to the left limitlessly and then find the furthest sound all the way to the right. Just feeling a wider horizon. And then lower your awareness to find the lowest sensation in the body and then Lower your awareness further, like it's sinking into the ground or the floor, down the floors below. Stretching your awareness up, well above the head. There's nothing outside of your mind. All of the world and the universe as it appears to you is in your mind. So just expand it. And in this expansive awareness, hearing the most distant sounds in each direction, aware of the most distant sensations, Bring awareness of the breath, awareness of the lights flickering beyond closed eyelids. Welcoming into this awareness 
any feelings outside of the breath in the body Does your stomach feel a little tight, or the buttocks, or the legs, or the do the toes feel curled or released? Just bring in as many somatic or physical embodied sensations into this awareness. Inviting whatever mood you're in, whether it's tired, frustrated, happy, tranquil, irritated, sad, content. There's no wrong emotional state. Just let it in, welcome it. And then finally allowing any thought that wants to be a part of this as well. Just don't allow your mind to shrink around any thought. Keep it as expansive and open and spacious. So nothing can cause any stress. No matter what thought appears, it can't make your awareness collapse around it. Try to grab every sensation, perception, event in the present and hold it all in awareness. So in a moment you're going to hear the sound of a bell. And when you hear that sound, take your time, slowly open your eyes, and do it in a way that sight doesn't push anything out of awareness. That you're still keeping in, you're sharing your awareness with sight, but you still have a sense of how you're breathing, what emotional state or mood you're in. You have an awareness of the background sounds. You have a sense of whether you're breathing in or out. You have a sense of what thoughts are present.
you're infusing the focus spotlight attention for a little while with the broader, more spacious awareness integrating the mind. 